Good evening. Firstly, I'm sorry that I'm not Mark speaking to you tonight. Um, we are so blessed to have him with us, but he can't take every single sermon, not like last week anyway, that was a marathon. Um, so sometimes it'll be somebody else, and I'm sorry that you have lucked out tonight and got me. <laughs> but you'll be glad to know that the passage was one that Mark chose for us for our evening sermon series on the Holy Spirit. And uh, I'm going to just draw out three things from that passage tonight. The first of those is what Jesus tells us about the Holy Spirit. Um, The second is this amazing reorientation of our relationship with God that is brought about by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and what that means. And finally, our response and the call here in these verses to obedience. Uh, Let's start with a little bit of context. So these verses come from John's Gospel, and they're that chunk of John, John verses chapter, sorry, 13 through to 17, which in your pew Bibles is like 1,020 to 1,025. And they are some of the most amazing chapters of the whole of the Bible. Um, We get Jesus' final urgent words at the Last Supper, and it's a really powerful read. I think here we encounter, like nowhere else in the Gospels, Jesus' heart, passion, his humanity, and the great divine plan of God. Jesus speaks frankly, sometimes frantically. It's raw, it's authentic. And for us, it's a little bit like being a fly on the wall of the most beautiful supper of all of history. Now, a cynic might say, How could John remember five chapters worth of Jesus' preaching? I love those kind of questions, actually. So let's start there, because the answer is in the passage we read tonight. Jesus taught us that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Um, In John 14, 26, he tells us that it's the Holy Spirit who's the one who enables us to remember things, to understand the things of God. He says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And this seemed like a good place to start because it's good to remember that the Bible is spirit-inspired. The Word of God is, alongside the Holy Spirit for inspiration, our clearest guide to God. And the Holy Spirit is essential for our understanding of it. And it's only the Holy Spirit who can make those words sink deep into our hearts and have an impact on our lives. Sometimes in the church, we make a split between whether we're focused on the Bible or focused on the Holy Spirit. And I was thinking that's a totally false dichotomy because the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible and absolutely crucial for our understanding of it. If we take just the word and ignore the Spirit... We risk being like the Pharisees, great in knowledge, but lacking in understanding. And if we take just the Spirit without the Word, then we ignore the greatest work of the Spirit in revealing God to us. We need them both. So what else does Jesus tell us about the Holy Spirit here? He also says, I will not leave you as orphans. This Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is to be with us. And he says, I'm giving you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. That word advocate is a translation of the Greek word paraclete. 
Um, para meaning alongside, cletus meaning called. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is the one who is called alongside us. When I was first asked to preach on these verses, I thought, I don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I thought, I do know about the one who is called alongside. Some of you will know that about a year ago, my husband Gareth was on the liver transplant waiting list um, because of a rare liver disease. And in one sense, the progression of that disease, the waiting to be on the transplant waiting list, the waiting once you're on the list, all of that is, is anxious. But actually, we felt an incredible sense of peace throughout it. Uh, it was last November when we got a call to say they thought there was a viable organ. And we left work and raced up to Birmingham, which is the nearest liver transplant center for us. And then there was a lot more waiting um, as they checked that the organ was viable, that everything could go ahead. And while they let the surgeons go and have a sleep because they'd spent the day repairing an operation that had gone wrong the day before. So it was about four in the morning when they said, we're taking you through to theatre, it goes ahead. And at that point, Gareth was taken from us. And I was there with his parents and the liver transplant coordinator who said to me, Ruth, go home or go to the house of your in-laws. Um, go there because you need to sleep if you can or try and keep busy, but don't stay here. And you know, it struck me then um, that that's pretty much the comfort the world can give you, isn't it? Have some sleep, try and keep busy. Like the comfort the world can offer in these situations is really pathetic. And some of you who know me will know I can be quite stubborn. So I said, no, I'm not going, I'm staying. Uh, and the transplant coordinator said, no, you really, you must go. She said, go. The people who stay for transplant operations pace up and down the whole time. They cannot sit down. They cannot stand still. They later say it's the worst hours of their life. Just go. And I said no. <laughs> and I stayed. But I tell you what, I did not pace. I did not feel any of the anxiety that would be perfectly natural. And that's not because... God had told me everything would work out okay because he hadn't. But he had told me in his word that he would be with me. And I knew that he would be with Gareth and I held to that. I also might have thought beforehand that I'd rush to the hospital chapel and I would spend hours praying there. And I didn't do that. And don't get me wrong, hospital chapels are wonderful places and at other times I have been there in important times for me. But actually, I knew I didn't need to race to the chapel to find God because God was with me right where I was. And so I said a prayer. I lay down on the bench seating in intensive care waiting area and I fell asleep. I set my alarm for 7.30 to wake up and send lesson plans to work. I felt what the Bible calls a peace that passes all understanding. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's possible because the Holy Spirit meets with us in these situations and dwells within us. And as we go on to what I secondly want to bring out, this idea of the indwelling Holy Spirit, I thought the best picture I could give to you of that was actually to remind you of Luke Wielemezai, who, though such a little boy, was full of the Holy Spirit. A really pure channel 
for the Spirit of God, which meant that though he was so young, he knew God, knew the power of prayer, could communicate the will of God to his parents and those who knew him. An astonishing picture for the way God would love to dwell in us without the obstacles that we put up. What does Jesus say about it here? He says, But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And he says in these verses, On that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. You know, Jesus is just starting to explain to the disciples how this mechanism works here. Paul goes in much more detail later, um, and there's a whole load of references from Paul to us being the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. To understand all those references to the temple might be helpful to think about what the temple in the Old Testament was. So the Israelites were blessed with this building which symbolized God's presence among them and that they were a chosen people marked out by God. And incredibly, Israel had this building in which the center was the Holy of Holies where God's spirit dwelt. Of course, for the Israelites to come anywhere near, there was ceremonies of purification and sacrifices and all of those things because how could broken humankind come anywhere near God? What's more astonishing here is that we're being told we are now the temple of God. That's how it was always meant to be. Back in Ezekiel 37, 26 to 27, God talked about creating a temple in their land where it will stay forever. I will live there with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And he wasn't talking about a (coughs) temple in bricks and mortar which could never last forever. We know the temple was destroyed. But by then God had set up his new temple, his church. And the Christians who would live in that church as a body of Christ are where God would dwell in them. Abby Folkus put it this way for me and I found it really useful so I thought I'd reference her tonight. She said, It struck me how we as humans are made of the same foundations as holy temples. We are designed to experience God in us in the same way architects design buildings. It is our design. It's our true calling. It's the true version of us, the true you, to be somebody in whom God can dwell completely and God can channel without obstruction to the rest of the world. It seems incredible that God could dwell in us, but it's possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. Prior to Jesus' death on the cross, The only way to approach God is through those ceremonies and those sacrifices. But once Jesus offers himself as the ultimate sacrifice for sin, we are in a position where it's not just that we can approach God. It's not just that we can pray to God. It's not just that we can praise God. It's not just we can talk to God. It's that God can dwell in us. And that's pretty astonishing. But it means that God is there in every moment of our lives. But it struck me that I think sometimes we still act a bit like it's Old Testament times. We come to the church on a Sunday like our trip to the temple. 
and we offer our sacrifices of our time and our worship. And we meet with God here, and then we go out the door and we just get on with stuff. When actually, through the cross, God called us to a much closer, more powerful relationship with God than that. One where he dwells in us and impacts every part of our life. Where he's with us in the office while we're doing the housework, while we're caring for a relative in every single mundane, stressful, squalid, difficult moment of your life. The one called alongside the one who is within. Actually, we're invited in these verses into an intimacy like that of the Trinity. Just before the passage we read tonight, um, in John 14, verse 11, Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. We get that. That makes a lot of sense. Five verses later, he expands on that to say, on that day you will realize I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Incredibly, we're invited into this close, intimate relationship with God. When foreigners looked at the Israelite temple, they knew there was something special about this nation, and God dwelt there. When outsiders look at us, do they recognize God within us? We've been offered this awesome gift from God. It's not just salvation, but it's the promise of his eternal presence within us. So the last thing I wanted to look at was what is our response to this? This phenomenal offer of relationship and intimacy with the living God. Our response is obedience. Jesus began the passage tonight with, if you love me, keep my commands. And he ended it with, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And Jesus himself is the great model of this. You know, In these chapters uh, that I've been talking about from John's Gospel, he said, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And John, the Apostle John, totally got this because he says in his letter to John, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. So we say, okay, <laughs> we want to do that. How do we do that? That again is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to live the life which God has called us to. To live lives worthy of the sacrifice of the cross of Christ. To live as true disciples. To live as salt and light in the world around us. To live like stars lighting up the universe. But what exactly is it we have to obey? What exactly is it that we have to do? Jesus made that abundantly clear. He summed up the whole of the Old Testament law when he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in these precious chapters of John, he makes the point over and over and over again. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another by this Everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Two chapters on. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And again, this is my command, love each other. I think this is 
particularly poignant for us um, as All Saints Western. We're at a time of transition, hugely blessed to have Mark and Megan and the family with us. We're a broad church and a diverse church, and that is our strength and not our weakness. In a time of transition, we are being called to love one another, to have love for this fellowship. If we have love for one another, Western will look in the doors and want what we have. And if we don't have love for one another, then everything else that we do will be hampered by that. Jesus' desire for this love, for this unity, is really clear at the end of this group of chapters where we're seeing him praying. And he says clearly, I'm praying not just for the disciples now, but for the whole church that's going to come after. And this is a prayer for us as All Saints Western. And Jesus says this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world will believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I felt there was a lot of talk about love. I didn't want the end of this to sound like a Beatles record. Because Jesus isn't talking about some cutesy kind of love here, really. He's actually talking about a love that exists when things are difficult. A love that is prides itself in submission, in service, in sacrifice. You know, these great chapters of John begin with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Like the Lord and Master of the universe, kneeling down to wash smelly feet. And these chapters end with Jesus' arrest, the sham trial, and his brutal crucifixion to save our souls. That is love. As Jesus says in John 15, 12 and 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. This is the kind of love that we are offered and also the kind of love that we are called to in the power of the Holy Spirit. I just want to say a prayer as we finish here. I just pray that each of you might know the insight and the interpretation of the Holy Spirit as you study God's word this week. May you know his presence as you go through whatever high waters you might be facing. May you know the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. And may you live out that deeper calling through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling deeper within you to love God and those around you with all of your heart, your soul, your strength and your mind. Amen.